March 1841. A huge crowd, said to be thousands, had gathered in the square in Shrewsbury at the Assizes Court next to the Market Hall. They were pushing to get a seat in the public gallery to watch one of the most anticipated trials for years and catch sight of the man accused of a shocking and atrocious crime. At an earlier hearing, a newspaper reporter had described the defendant as he stood in the dock. He has a large and full mouth, a well-chiselled upper chin, expressive of strong, very strong animal passions and steady determination. His eye is peculiar and, although rather dimmed on the morning in question, was bright, glittering and wild as that of a newly caged rat. But today was the start of the full trial. Josiah Mister, who looked younger than his 25 years, faced the court and the charges were put to him. Wounding with intent to disfigure, maim and murder. In a determined voice, he replied, not guilty. Seven months earlier, it was a Thursday, the 20th of August, 1840, at 11 o'clock at night, the end of a busy market day in Ludlow. William Miller Macreth, a trader from Bristol, retired to his room at the packed-out Angel Inn. He locked the door, blew out the candle and went to bed. The clock ticked and the hours passed until it reached four o'clock. The guests and landlord Mr Cook woke, startled by the sound of an upstairs window being smashed open and blood-curdling cries of fire coming from an upstairs room. They rushed to see what was going on. On the stairs were confronted by Macreth in his bedclothes and his blood-soaked hands gripping his throat where he had a gash that stretched from ear to ear. Shocked, Cook asked him what he'd done to himself, initially thinking he'd try to take his own life. They took him back into the bedroom, sat him down and told him to pray. By this time the room was busy with people coming in and out to see what had happened and offering help. They passed him a steel-nibbed pen and he started to scrawl. Some villain has done it. He stood on my left. I grasped his hand. He escaped. Is there any danger? Is the man found? A doctor was staying at the inn and was on the scene to help staunch the bleeding. Macreth pointed to the bed. They tentatively looked underneath and saw a match and a piece of sandpaper. And next to it, the figure of a man, clearly marked in the dust. Monday the 10th of August 1840 in Shrewsbury. Mr Ludlow, a well-known wealthy butcher, stout and elderly, is staying at the Unicorn Inn at the bottom of Wild Cop. A regular customer, he'd just arrived on a coach from Birmingham. He's talking to a fellow trader in the commercial room. It's busy there, 
bustling with other traders and travellers, including Josiah Mister. Mr Ludlow doesn't know him, but Josiah seems to know Mr Ludlow, and he'd been taking a keen interest. And he joins them for tea. The night before his arrival, Josiah had been asking the waitress if Mr Ludlow was coming. And after he'd arrived and later retired to bed, Josiah, now on friendly terms with the waitress, probed her further, asking her how long he was staying and in which room. She told him, adding that he was sharing it with a friend tonight. On Wednesday, Mr Ludlow left the inn. The following day, so did Josiah, leaving his bill unpaid. Josiah Mister, with just a penny in his pocket, made his way to the town of Ludlow, 27 miles away. He walked, hitched lifts and took shelter overnight in barns and hayricks and begged for food. And he got there six days later, the day before market day. At seven o'clock, Josiah was sitting on the bank of the River Team, where two local men were fishing. He asked them when the Red Rover coach was due to arrive. An hour later, it trundled past. And Josiah bolted after it. It pulled up outside the Angel Inn, and Mr Ludlow stepped out. He went inside, and Josiah followed him tightly, as if to give the impression to others that they were together. Recognising Josiah from his earliest day in Shrewsbury, he invited him to sit. They had tea together, before Mr Ludlow went into another room. The evening wore on, and at 10.30, the chambermaid, holding a candle, escorted Josiah Mister upstairs and along the corridor to his room, number 20. Another guest was staying at the inn that night, and he'd been out all day and returned late. His name was William Miller Macreth, a 30-year-old cattle dealer from Bristol. At 11 o'clock, the busy chambermaid took him to his room, to the top of the same set of stairs. She put Macreth into room number 17. This was unusual. For many years, this room, during market days, had been reserved solely for the use of their loyal customer, Mr Ludlow. He was always in there, except this one occasion. Macreth went inside with the candle, locked his door and blew out the light. It was pitch black. The clock ticked and the hours passed until it reached four o'clock and he was attacked. He woke, fought off his attacker and smashed the window to get attention. The assailant bolted out of the room. Two hours later, the police were at the scene. Officer Hammond stepped out of Macreth's room, looked down and saw drops of blood on the carpet. And they were leading down the corridor he followed the trail to where they stopped, by the door of Josiah Mister, and he pushed.
The trial began at precisely nine o'clock in the morning, on Tuesday, the 23rd of March, 1841. The heaving courtroom in Shrewsbury had fallen silent to hear the counsel for the prosecution outline their evidence. Made up of three top legal minds, they would call no less than 40 witnesses to the stand. They were determined to prove that Josiah Mister was the man who committed this terrible crime and should hang. There were four key pieces of evidence. Who was the real intended target? Had the attacker got the wrong man? In the weeks running up to the attack, Josiah Mister had been showing an unusual interest in Mr Ludlow, someone he'd seemingly stalked all the way from Shrewsbury and keen to know where he was staying, as many witnesses were able to show. And for years, whenever Mr Ludlow came to Ludlow for the summer fair, he always stayed in room 17 at the Angel Inn. Always, except this one occasion. For some reason, this time he didn't, and it was taken by William McCreth. McCreth, it seems, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, Josiah behaved very strangely. The victim recalled seeing him at the end of his bed while the doctors were patching him up. Josiah appeared to be laughing and was asking where his slippers and stockings had gone. The match under the bed where the attacker had been waiting for hours for the right moment to strike. It was a Lucifer match and on his route to Ludlow, Josiah Mister stopped and talked to a nine-year-old boy and his friend in Church Stretton. They were tormenting a wasp's nest with stones and a spade. The boys described how Josiah had prodded the nest and then produced a lucifer match, telling them that this was what they need, but then he placed it back in his waistcoat. The razor in the yard. A razor with a black handle was found at the foot of a woodpile, which was within easy throwing distance from room 20 where Josiah was staying, blood partially wiped from the blade. At the trial, a former Birmingham housemate of Josiah's gave evidence that he had lent Josiah a black-handled razor the month before the attack, and he'd never had it back. But perhaps the most crucial evidence was the blood. A trail of it led from the victim's room, down the corridor, to Josiah's door. There was a smear of blood on the curtains by the window from where the razor could easily have been thrown. There were spots of blood on his shirt and a surgeon who'd been at the inn examined the scene after Josiah had been arrested. He saw a bowl filled with water, dipped his finger in it and could taste alum. Now, all good doctors and surgeons know that using alum is the perfect way to remove blood from clothing. In the face of what seemed an overwhelming amount of evidence, Josiah Mister in the defendant's box looked surprisingly calm. But to convince the jury of his innocence, it would take perhaps the greatest feat of persuasion the court had ever seen. Step forward, Mr Valentine Lee well-known, eminent barrister from Oxford.
He was one of the most eminent barristers on the circuit, tipped to one day become a judge, and he was defending 25-year-old Josiah Mister, a man from a respectable family in Birmingham, who now found himself on a charge of attempted murder. In his opening statement, barrister Mr Valentine Lee told the jury that the prosecution evidence was based on cruel and absurd speculation. Mr Valentine Lee began tearing it apart. The Lucifer match. A young boy had seen Mr with one at Church Stretton when they were by the wasp's nest and the inference was immediately drawn that this was the same match that was found under Macreth's bed. Well, that's not the greatest coincidence in the world. Lots of people have matches. The razor in the yard. As soon as it was found, straight away it was assumed that it belonged to Josiah. They also assumed this razor was one that used to belong to his former housemate in Birmingham, Mr Vaughan. And yet, the razor he supposedly lent him had a mark down the middle. The only way to get rid of this mark would be to grind it off. And yet, the razor found in the woodpile had no mark. But neither did it have any signs that anything had been ground off. The blood. Mr Lee showed the jury the shirt that Josiah Mister was wearing at the time of the crime. They looked at it carefully and saw a few spots of blood. But think about it, he urged the jury. Remember how brutal and bloody the attack had been. Wouldn't there be considerably more blood on the shirt if Josiah was the man who'd done it? He showed them the curtain. And it took them some time to find two small marks, hardly worth looking at. It can't be fair for a witness to be asked if these could have been made by throwing something out of the window and only in a particular way. And in fact, how do you know it's even blood? Talk about stretching the evidence to fit your story. Then there was the bowl of water. The taste test revealed it contained soap. Well, so what? It would only really be of any evidential value if the doctor or the surgeon who tested it had said they'd also tasted blood. But they didn't. And what's so unusual about a man having a wash? And finally, the trail of blood leading to Josiah's room. Just after the attack, the landlord, Mr Cook, and the guest who was next door to Josiah had been to see the victim, who was spurting blood everywhere. Is it not inevitable that they would get blood on them? They then walked up and down the corridor a few times, fetching bandages. It's not unreasonable to suppose that it was them who caused the drops to fall on the carpet. And, as the jury had heard, Macreth had also been to the room after the attack and would have passed by Macreth's bloodied helpers, who would have, by accident, transferred a few spots of blood onto him. The forceful defence lasted for an hour and a half, and Mr Valentine Lee told the jury that law, justice and religion demanded a verdict of not guilty. Josiah Mister stood in the dock, his dark hair centre parted and smoothly brushed down on each side. He was wearing a dark green coat with a velvet collar 
over his slight frame. A dark satin waistcoat and grey trousers with a black stripe. His shirt collar and wristbands slightly exposed. He calmly looked at the jury, his eyes appearing rather large, very dark but bright. It was quarter past seven in the evening. After a long day, the public gallery was still packed, mostly by women, and they were hushed. <coughs> the jury had returned after deliberating for just 35 minutes. The foreman stood up and the judge asked him for a verdict. The juror replied. Guilty. Josiah swerved back as if he'd been hit by a fatal blow. He covered his face for a minute and tried to regain his composure. The clerk asked him why he should now not die according to the law. Visibly shaken and in a subdued voice, he replied, I'm not guilty of it. The judge then picked up his black cap and placed it on his head and summed up the case. He told Josiah to prepare for death by asking for mercy in the next world, which he won't be receiving in this, and he was sentenced to death. His face, now drained of colour, betrayed the intense mental agony he was in as he was led back to the cell. The condemned man wrote letters to his family and his fiancée, continuing to protest his innocence. But word soon got to him of a remarkable turn of events. A petition was being drawn up for the death sentence to be commuted to transportation for life. His well-connected brother in Birmingham, John Mister, was behind the campaign and backing him was the foreman of the jury. And Mr Ludlow, the man who it's believed was the intended target of the attack. With just a matter of days till the execution date, time was of the essence. John Mister and Mr Ludlow went to Bristol to canvas William McCrath himself, the victim of the bloody crime, to back them. And he did. They made a personal appeal to the judge and the Home Secretary. There was high expectation they would succeed. All they had to do now was wait for the stagecoach carrying the mail to arrive. Saturday morning, the 3rd of April, 1841. His jailers walked into his cell and Josiah stood up and he was led up the stairs to the porter's office. He sat down and the irons were taken off. A door in front of Josiah opened and a man walked in. He was old, small and thin and had a mild expression in his face. He was wearing a smock frock. He was known as the finisher of the law. No reprieve had come. The bell sounded, another door opened, and Josiah was led out onto a platform in front of the Danner prison, in front of thousands. A pin was pulled. He was launched into eternity. The rain started to fall. 
getting heavier over the next hour and the crowd dispersed. But there wasn't a solemn atmosphere. In fact, the mood amongst the town folk was buoyant. The public houses filled up and the streets were busy with people enjoying themselves and drunkenness appeared to be the order of the day. Josiah Mister was laid to rest on the north side of St Mary's Church in Shrewsbury. 